Uh, welcome, everybody. It's wonderful to see so many cartooning fans uh, here today at the National Library of Australia. My name is Guy Hanson. I'm Director of Exhibitions here at the Library, which is a, a pretty good job. Um, one, of the things, one of the great things that I get to do in this job is do exhibitions like the one which is currently on Inked um, upstairs, which is a, a survey of, Australian of 200 years of Australian cartooning. It was a lot of fun doing that show. Before I go any further, um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for the land we're now on. And I'd also like to acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander visitors who are here today. So as I said, the show upstairs, uh, Inked, is the pretext for today's event, um, 40 years of cartooning at the Canberra Times. And we're very lucky because we've got two of Australia's best political cartoonists here today who have agreed to be grilled about how they do their cartooning. Grilled. So uh, <laughs> uh, we'll see if we can get some answers today. Okay, so um, first of all, I, I, I think as is... Uh, uh, Chronologically correct, I should start with Jeff. Um, I, hope, <laughs> I hope I'm going to start with Jeff. Um, I'm Jeff. going to uh, seek help oh, from yeah. my... Hey, there we go. It's working. So, um, no talk is, is complete without a technical problem. Um, now, we're very lucky here at the library because um, Jeff, of course, worked at the Canberra Times from 1978 up until... 2008, and as a cartoonist, he had a huge archive of cartoons, many of which were stuck underneath his desk, and uh, we're very lucky because he donated many of those cartoons to the National Library of Australia, and then, of course, went, was incredibly generous by going on and uh, helping us catalogue those cartoons. So we've got one of the best formed collections of cartoons in Australia, and also one of the best catalogued collections of cartoons, and that's, that's down to Jeff. So, um, Jeff, I thought it might be good. You came to the. Uh, sorry, there we go. Ah, I needed to turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> it's still not working. Ah, here we go. <laughs> I didn't expect this to be a slapstick performance. I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, this is going back into the 70s, uh, not not long after you started at the Canberra Times, and I, I thought this was a very interesting um, cartoon because. Um, it's, it's showing how cartoonists often have to deal with very sad uh, topics and, and, of course, that's hard to make a joke out of that. Yes, very much so. It's, uh, in fact, it's a, probably a, a better use of white than I normally did. Uh, I drew it on a board called Duo Shade, and, uh, uh, which was a chemically treated art board, uh, but in this particular instance I, I, I didn't use the chemical tones at all. Yes. It could because it just didn't need it. And you're, and you're catching up with, um, of course, the, the kind of crises in both um, Cambodia or Kampuchea yes. and Timor, which are kind of almost beyond words, aren't they, to, yes. to say something about them? Well, you don't try and be funny. No. You, know, you just try and sort of capture the essence of it. Yes. So um, caricatures, of course, are a very important part of the uh, cartoonist's toolkit. And I've just pulled out a couple of... Uh, uh, of caricatures from the collection. Um, very hard, because there's 5,000 works in your collection, so it's hard to choose which ones. But um, your Placido Keating, I think, is a classic. <laughs> uh, 
Well, that's a sort of comment that uh, you, you, you trust the reader is familiar enough with your work because I haven't shown his face at all, but it's mm. all context because, you know, I think that appeared as a pocket there, the little cartoons appear contextually uh, as um, uh, used to appear in the age in, in Melbourne a lot. And uh, so you're just relying on context and reader's familiarity to get the point of it. And of course, um, I think one, one thing which is quite amazing about your career is you weren't just the editorial cartoonist, you often did the pockets and the caricatures and many illustrations for the Canberra Times, which yes. meant you weren't at home much, I suspect. You would have been very busy, seven very, days a week, producing cartoons. I was very overworked at first. Uh, <laughs> I had people all day long putting uh, jobs on the corner of my drawing desk, you know, illustrations and things, because, you know, editors are always uh, competing with one another within the paper to try and dress their pages up, and an illustration would have looked good. And I think uh, the deputy editor at the time, he, uh, he was the straw that broke the camel's back here. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and he put another assignment on my desk and then I, uh, I then flew off the handle and told him, you know, did he think I was a machine or did I have a slot in the top of my head that he could feed two bobs into? <laughs> and uh, thereafter the editor said all, um, all requests for work had to go through him and he would filter them. And well, so that eased it off quite I'm a bit. I'm very glad that happened because it must probably meant you had a much longer career at the Canberra <laughs> Times. Um, but here's another caricature which I, I love um, of Mark Latham. Uh, a figure who still has a presence in Australian politics. Yes, he <laughs> always will have, knowing Latham. Uh, yes, I had a great deal of fun drawing that because uh, I know that people all around Canberra were buying copies of his diaries, uh, not, not to read it, but just to see if they were mentioned in the index. <laughs> and um, and he, at that stage, was uninhibited. He was saying whatever he, uh, he, he felt he was pertinent to him and uh, so of course being nitric acid I've got him wearing rubber gloves and a, a rubber a apron as he, uh, as he writes this, this diary. <laughs> and the caricature, it was a, a matter of I suppose capturing the shape of his head which was very blockish and... Um, uh, and he I does look like a former rugby league player. An arm breaker in yes. fact, yeah. yeah. So what... One of the <laughs> This for me, seeing this here now, from this angle, just reminds me of the sort of um, filmic staging you bring to your work, like that you will set the camera in a scene. You know, it might be above, it might be sort of in this case, it's like you're a director and you've, you know, you've created this. And I get really struck by it, um, just looking at it now. It's Ooh. something that really stands out about your work. It's really like a, a, film, a film director staging a, a scene. Well, yours is informed the same sort of way. You, you like drama in your drawings, I always did. And uh, I was always looking for ways of directing the, uh, the eye. Uh, in fact, the one of the, um, the starving, the, the East Timor Campuchia one, uh, the eye normally on a page starts to the left-hand top corner uh, and then moves across. And so that, that stretch of white page uh, would lead the reader, hopefully, to that point in the drawing. And, uh, yes, David's right, that informed most of the work I did. I always had a sort of a, a, a cinema a graphic feel about it, you know. There had to be um, uh, sort of a construction 
and figures had to be in various places. They weren't there by random, they were all there by design. So this is a storyboard for Mark Latham, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'll go see that movie. It's, uh, history is, when I look at your work, and I've followed it for a very long time, um, I find that you really are very engaged with Australian history and you yes. often uh, bring up historical references and historical metaphors. So uh, I, I, I this cartoon from 2001, which uh, talks about the white Australia policy. Yes. Um uh, the visual metaphor is the, the guts of it all, uh, the, how you, the vehicle you choose to uh, present your idea, and it's all part of the thinking process. David, this is uh, your brilliance, you, you do this beautifully, but it's um, history, I've always been interested in it, so I always look back, um, and of course this is self-explanatory, um, uh, the white Australia policy, the ghost the black ghost of it, the white policy, has uh, left its tomb and is on the march again. And, of course, one of the things I particularly like about this is it's 2001, which is the centenary of Federation, and, of course, the first act of the Australian Parliament was the Immigration Restriction Act, yes. which was all about white Australia. So it's just the right time to remind us of our foundation. Yes, yeah. yes. I was going to say, you've, I noticed you've got the date on there. <clears throat> when I started working at the paper, I didn't put dates on my cartoons and then people started nagging me because you had them on and when they ripped them out of the paper, they didn't have to write the day of the paper on. They yes. could just... <laughs> I, I must so say, I had as, to a, file. as a collector of cartoons, I think it is extremely valuable, so please keep yeah. it. <laughs> yes, well, they say that sometimes you know, journalism is the first uh, writing of history. Well, the, uh, the Often the cartoon is a prelude to that, the first version of the first version, uh, because it's so immediate. And, of course, the date is the, the, the uh, absolutely necessary point of reference. Another part of Australian history which I think often comes out of your cartoons is Australia's history of involvement in the First World War and the Second World War and of the Anzac uh, story or myth, and um, that features in many of your cartoons, but I particularly like this cartoon, uh, The Last Digger, or The Last Anzac. Well, you see, it's uh, the 18th of, uh, of um, April, you know, May, sorry, so it's just after Anzac Day, so Anzac Day is still uh, very much featuring in, in uh, readers' minds, and the whole mythology of, of Anzac, um, I mean, the, the burden that the old digger is carrying on his back now is about half of what uh, politicians and others are trying to make it. You know, in our minds, the whole mythology of Anzac is frankly out of hand. Yes. So, um, for a large part of your career, the, <laughs> the uh, 1980s and coming into the 1990s, um, uh, and I'm, I'm sure David will have a comment on this as well, is engaging with the period, the phrase which was used at this time was economic rationalism, neoliberalism, structural reform in the Australian yes. economy. And I think some of the most interesting commentators on that in Australia were the cartoonists and what happened. And I think this is a, a wonderful cartoon from 1997 about some of the consequences of, of all the events which were happening at that time. Well, uh, I was trying to get the idea of a sort of a vast open sea. Um, it looks more like a range of mountains but uh, in the drawing of it, but I hope I've got the idea across, but always remember the old, um, the old 
joke of, of how many uh, Chicago economists does it take to change a light globe? And the answer is none, because they're all waiting for the invisible hand. And, uh, and so that was very much the neoliberal um, arguments uh, about uh, you know, economics. And uh, we were very much to the fore, and very much in my mind at the time, too. And you knew David engaged in a critique of neoliberalism throughout a lot of your career as well. Well, yeah, it wasn't called neoliberalism. And as you said, it was, it was called economic called rationalism. That was, the, <coughs> yeah. that was the term at the time. Yeah, yeah. eco-rats. Uh, sorry? Eco-rats. Yes, that's right. And yeah. <coughs> um, it's interesting. Well, we've got the, the state funeral for Bob Hawke uh, right now, I think, or uh, yeah. at yes. the moment. And um, that's when I came into politics eligible to vote for the first time at the 1983 election and unemployment was a, was a big issue amongst my peers, amongst people of my age. I'm the same age as you, David. Yes. I remember it well. <laughs> yeah. It was in the western suburbs of Sydney. Yeah, and yeah. were unemployed, yes. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that, that was a visceral issue then. Yes. Uh, yeah. So one thing about both of you guys is you're both Canberrans, um, a South Sider and a North Sider. And, <laughs> yeah. um, of course... I think that's really come through in your cartoons over the years, and I think this is a fantastic cartoon to do with the bushfires, Jeff. Yes, um, this is a personal one to me, uh, because I was in Canberra at the time, and in fact, um, the afternoon of the fire, everything turned black, and sitting on my uh, front veranda or, or the, the front garden, it sounded like it was drizzling with rain, you know, that's the ash pitter-pattering down, and, um, and uh, I'd... And in fact, I think it was only a couple of days ago on Big Ideas I heard um, uh, uh, Bruce Pascoe and others talking about uh, the fires in Canberra and Jane Smythe and her husband Rick and Jane talking about her experience and they almost lost it. They lost their house but they were very, very lucky to get out of it and it was a very moving um, uh, uh, tale she told about you know, their close escape and how they lost everything. Um, I went down to the Narrabunda College uh, that night when Triple uh, Six was calling for donations, you know, of bedding and so forth, and uh, we had a, a foam mattress that was still in its plastic that we, we hadn't yet unwrapped. And so I took it down there and uh, I saw people uh, marching in with all this stuff. I just couldn't believe it. It was probably one of the most moving things I've, I've seen, you know, that I think... Uh, I think the line was that, that, yeah, well, city without a soul. Uh, well, you know, that it proved itself to be anything but. Uh, so, yes, I'll say that, that that particular drawing is one that does stand out. So, for both of you, um, what do you think is unique or about Canberra and, and about a Canberra audience which allows you to perhaps do something different than cartoonists in other cities? Well... Well, just briefly, yeah. uh, for me, um, yeah. I growing up in the place, um, I, uh, I was educated here, um, uh, growing up, and, and lots of my friends, uh, colleagues who I grew up with, they all went on to jobs in the bureaucracy, some, some of them quite senior. So uh, I always knew that uh, I had a readership out there beyond the general uh, circulation of the paper, <laughs> uh, which... Uh, wasn't going to let me off lightly if they thought that I was being a bit light on. But that, that was my um, feeling about being here. It was, I had chances to go elsewhere, but uh, Canberra was important. How yeah. do you feel about Canberra? Oh, well, I think that, that's the thing. Um, 
half the readership are working in the federal bureaucracy and are engaging with these issues in a very direct way. A lot of, a lot of the politics and the issues of the day um, in a way that they might not be in other places. And, and so you do get the feedback from people. If you, if you draw on a topic that they know something about, and I think you've, you've said before, invariably everyone knows more about it than you do. Or, any, on any topic you draw about, there's a big chunk of the audience that are knee-deep in it. So, um, it, But it allows you to... I was thinking this, this today. I was, I'm thinking I might, put, um, I might draw a cartoon of uh, Bolton. I might put yeah. Bolton and Trump in a cartoon for tomorrow. And I'm thinking, gee, a lot of places, I, I just couldn't do that. People wouldn't know who it was. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, I, and you always wrestle with that because the readership is diverse. Um, uh, even in a, in a town like this, there it's a diverse readership, and not everyone's going to get every cartoon. And you've got to, I think, I try and put different things into the cartoons to try and reach people in different ways. Um, but it is the case that uh, you, I can put Bolton into a cartoon, and people are going to know who it is. Well, Howard, Howard used to say, John Howard used to say that uh, you could never work Canberra out. It um, lived like Kalara and, and voted like Cessnock. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and my my thought about that was that uh, Canberra, if nothing else, is a, a policy savvy city. You know that people understand the ins and outs of policy debates, so uh, they're not going to uh, take kindly to bullshit. It's, it's interesting, yeah. of course, Cessnock voted a different way at the last mm. election, so <laughs> I think that relationship's gone. Um, yes. So, oh, David, David Pope, of course, who followed on <laughs> from, uh, from Jeff at the Canberra Times. Um, David, before we engage in your time at the Canberra Times, I thought we should doff our cap to your prehistory. Um, your pre-Pope times when you were better known as Hins. Yeah, so I had a, I had a pseudonym. I, I wasn't, I didn't set out to become a cartoonist. I um, drew little, I always drew and I drew little cartoons for various activist um, movements I was involved in, the peace movement um, and, and the environment movement and eventually uh, the Labor Studies briefing where I studied, I studied in Adelaide um, for a period and I drew cartoons for their journal and they started circulating them. People asked to reprint them and it, it became a, an activity after that. It became a bit of a job. Um, so I, didn't, I had the pseudonym from way back and uh, it wasn't a planned thing. And at a certain point, I think it was when I started working at the Camera Times, I thought, this is just going to be a pain. So I just started signing them under my own name. So is there any truth to the rumour that, like Beto, you were actually in a punk band early in your career? Yes, yeah, and uh, that's okay. where the, the, the So Hins was, was the character in the, yeah, in the band? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I worked as a freelancer. Once I decided I was going to do cartooning a bit more seriously, I worked as a freelancer for a long time. Jeff uh, offered me very kindly work as a casual illustrator um, for a period there. I think he rang me up and I said no when he asked if I'd like some work there because I was a cartoonist, not an illustrator, and they're two very different things and I wasn't confident about being able to do that. But uh, my partner said that, you're being an idiot, go and have a, <laughs> go and have a crack. And um, I went and uh, enrolled in uh, some nights, night classes in watercolour with Noel Ford. Does anyone here know... Um, Yes, Noel Ford, terrific, uh, terrific tutor at the School of Art for doing um, watercolour courses. And I did a couple of semesters with him and uh, 
and got my confidence up and I basically treated all those casual jobs, you, it was piece rates, you go in and those little forms that appear on your desk, you know, yes. draw a picture for this article. And uh, I just treated each one as a drawing exercise um, and, uh, and practised the techniques that I'd been learning. And, 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 <laughs> and I did that until Rural Press got rid of all their casual artists with a stroke of the pen in one economic rationalist exercise. So, so. Yeah. <coughs> and you and also the, filled in for Jenny Coops a bit at the Sun Hill. Yeah, and eventually I got a job. Uh, she took a, re a redundancy from the paper and I started working there um, after her. And then uh, Jeff retired and I took on the, the gig there. Yeah. Uh, I think, again, Jeff put my name forward to, to replace him and invited me along to a meeting with, um, uh, a meeting with the editor at the time. And it was a lunch meeting and, uh, and we were just talking away. And I, Jeff was looking a bit concerned, I seemed to think, because I wasn't treating it like it was a job interview. <laughs> and uh, this guy didn't know who I was. And, and it wasn't, so it wasn't going particularly well in, in that. I hadn't, hadn't picked this up. And fortunately, I had in my bag uh, a copy of Behind the Lines um, catalogue, which Guy, used, Guy set, set up that exhibition, doesn't curate it anymore, but um, it was very generous to freelancers like myself and included one or two things in at the time. And uh, fortunately, I had that copy. Had been, I'd picked it up from the post office on my way to this meeting, and I gave him that. And, uh, and he goes, oh, you're that good. Like, that sort of made sense then. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't remember it being that difficult. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> that's my memory. I was, I was a bit blasé. Jeff, yeah. that reminds me that um, Pickering was the cartoonist at the Canberra Times before you, and he put forward your name. Is that right? Well, he yes, he'd moved to uh, Sydney, and I think then uh, he may have been in the process of trying to set up a, an advertising um, uh, business. And he rang me up. In fact, it was one of the few times I spoke to Larry and uh, he was trying to sound me out about moving to Sydney. I wasn't interested. I, um, I was determined to stay in Canberra, and, uh, you know, no, nothing was going to move me. Uh, but at the time, he gave me um, a very sage bit of advice. He, um, he said, you know, when you draw a cartoon, always put your caption in a bubble, and we'll see from some of the older uh, cartoons that the caption line was often separate from the drawing and, and underneath. Uh, and uh, he said, yes, if you build it into the composition, uh, you know, in a bubble, then uh, people find it very hard to change it, you know, if they think of a better caption, it's there, it's part of the drawing, <laughs> and, and it's there to stay. That, and uh, I, uh, I took that to heart, uh, and I'll just make this quick, but I only spoke to Larry once again, and it was when uh, Moad, uh, Old Parliament House, was going to have an exhibition of cartoons, and they sounded me out. And uh, I thought, well, you know, just, just to my work, no, that wouldn't be right, because Larry Pickering had also been involved. So I said, why don't we get Larry as well? And they, and they said, yeah, that's a great idea. And I said, well, look, I, I'll see if I can get hold of Larry and ask him. And, uh, and that was a devil of a job. Uh, uh, I couldn't find him anywhere. Black and white artists didn't know. He just dropped out of sight. And uh, I got onto the brainwave. I got onto John Singleton's uh, personal assistant uh, in his office in Sydney. And I said, I'm trying to contact Larry Pickering because I knew that they were close through their racing, horse racing interests. And, and she didn't want to uh, cooperate, but then I told her what it was about. So she gave me a mobile number and I rang it up. 
And it rang and this voice said, yeah. <laughs> I said, is that Larry Pickering? Uh, uh, who wants to know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said who it was. He said, oh, g'day, how are you? You know, I haven't spoken to you in years. And then I, I, um, I laid out the, uh, the proposition. Did he want to participate in the exhibition? He said, oh, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, go ahead. I said, do you have any originals? He said, no, I don't have any of those. Uh, anyway, it worked out. We used um, file bromides and things, and it worked out quite well. But Larry hadn't kept anything, wasn't interested. That was part of his life that had finished. Mm. So to try and give an insight into the mind of a cartoonist, I thought, David, it might be good to step people through how we came up with the logo for our exhibition. Um, and you were the unlucky uh, cartoonist who I asked to do the logo, and um, we had to work our way through a number of ideas. So yeah. <laughs> these are some of the roughs, early roughs Yeah, these are just the roughs I would have sent you. And uh, so the first one's based on a, a Phil May cartoon about the, um, was it the Mongolian octopus? It's a racist cartoon you'll see in the, in the exhibition. Um, very powerful uh, image. And um, I wanted to, <laughs> I came up, so when you're working through ideas, you just work through ideas. And they aren't necessarily going to work for the purpose uh, that you require, but you just have to let your brain uh, work away. And uh, I knew that image could, wasn't going to work on a cover, but I was just struck by, for me, the sort of terrible aspects of Australian cartooning. You know, the racism, yeah. the, 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 this boys' club that it's been for a million years, um, uh, and uh, the portrayal of uh, different groups, the sort of subservience to different media barons at different times. Um, so I just was playing, that's what that first image was trying to capture. I knew it wasn't going to be one that you would use or... But it got but, us talking. It got, yeah, it got us talking. Um, the next one was, again, trying to... I had this love... I guess, I guess these ideas are reflecting my love-hate relationship with Australian cartooning, you know? So, um, uh, so I was trying... In the next image, this is trying to bring different elements in a coat of arms idea. I've used coat of arms in a few cartoons I've drawn and I was trying to bring all the elements, the, the petty machine, the loony duck, the sort of tradition of Australian military cartoons through the wars. Um, and then I think it was the fact that you were toying with the idea of inked that uh, we ended up settling on this sort of tattooing image which captures a sort of, uh, well it's there's it, a sort of subversive, subver, subversive elements in the, in the cartoon because yes. it's appropriating a, quite a strong image of Rosie the Riveter, but there's this masculinist thing about the history of Australian cartoons and then portraying different cartoons in the arms. It was a chance to actually show yeah. the, the varying elements of Australian cartoons. Well, it was an absolute treat to work with you and I think the, the evolution of the idea, we ended up with a great design. And just to explain why we called it inked, because there's a, in the more traditional 20th century, inking in was a, a key part of the process of doing a cartoon. So you might prepare a sketch which an uh, editor might say yes to or which you just get your ideas and then once you are happy or your paper was happy, you'd actually ink in and that's why it's called inked. And I, I quite deliberately called it inked because I know um, tattooing is quite popular and there are most probably some confused young people who are going to the exhibition <laughs> expecting to see tattoos, but I'm introducing them to the history of Australian cartooning, so it's all to the, but all I think, to the best. Yeah, just, in terms yeah. of the process, I think um, <coughs> what it shows is that in any creative process, there's... A, a time where you're just trying to get into 
a creative associative mode where you're not trying to edit yourself, you're not trying to censor yourself, you're just trying to make associations and put down ideas and then you've got to get into the editor mode which says what works, what doesn't for the purposes. And it can be very difficult to shift in those modes and too often you're in editor mode right from the start yeah. and then you're not playing with ideas and then it becomes didactic and that, that can be a real problem with my cartoons is they can be very teachy or yeah. you know wordy and... Um, you and try show, don't tell. Yeah, yeah. And, and you've got to show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, that's the struggle I find in that process. So I was just going to say, with that other one, the, the draftsmanship, that, that also informs forms you a bit about uh, the preparation that goes in and uh, the draftsmanship which, which leads to the, um, to the final formulation, yes. uh, con conceptualisation of the idea, and, and that one, David's draftsmanship, is, uh, is brilliant. And here you can yeah. see the, the finished yeah. product where... Yes. You've gone through all those rough ideas and we even discussed the expression on the kangaroo's face and uh, exactly what the tattoos would be. So a lot of work went into that to produce the, the artwork, which of course then is given to the designer, work mm. with the designer to produce the final treatment. So it, it's, um, it just it's sort of shows the power of the visual yeah. communication, which I think is very strong. It's yeah. probably a bit cleaner than I'd like because uh, I think in the process... One of your designers was talking about putting on a giant banner and I was thinking, oh, it's going to have to be blown up a million sizes. So I was drawing it in what's called vector, where you draw on a computer and rather than a, an image that's made up of little pixels, you're drawing the image as a series of mathematical relationships so that the image appears the same no matter what size you... Anyway, that creates a sort of smoother look to it, which... Now that I look at it, I go, I want to dirty it up a bit. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll let the designer know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, let's um, have a look at a. So a few I'll just now. This is something I learned from Judy: is you read through the cartoon with right. an audience. So, and now cried Kevin, King of all the wild things. Let the carefully calibrated deliberations of the non-binding predetermined programmatic oh, specifics commence. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it nice to be reminded of Rudd's language? From <laughs> it is a spectacular cartoon, and I think it. It, it's a good example of something that you do a lot, which is your pop culture references or your... You, you draw on movies, you draw on children's books, you draw on sport, all sorts of things to inform your cartoons. Of course, you're not unique in that, but I, I think um, this is a really good example of everybody as a child read that. Everybody's children is reading it today, and it really helps take you into the idea and, and try and work out what Rudd was trying to say. Yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, as Jeff has said, the search, one of the, the search every day is for the metaphor, isn't it? Yeah. It's trying to find the metaphor. A, a metaphor is an incomplete way of understanding something, but hopefully it uh, provides a way, another way into understanding something. And that's always the, and, and so trying to cast that net as wide as possible in terms of p potential metaphors. And it's perhaps interesting to think about the differences, Jeff, to how you used to work. And I remember visiting you in your office some um, 20, 25 years ago with you actually working at an easel and with yes. ink and there was Pen ink and, and smudges yes. everywhere. And David, today you're working on a, on a tablet. Or yeah. A, yeah. So it's, very, it's changed quite a lot. Yeah, it's very, um, it, it looks very different. I mean, just seeing all those boards mm. uh, that when I started working at the paper, we drew everything on this thick cardboard. Yeah, um, Bain, Bainbridge. Bainbridge board. Yeah. And you'd ink it in, you pencil it in, you'd ink it in and mm. you'd use watercolour and you'd get a hairdryer dry between layers and yep. 
And then you'd have this stack of boards, uh, yes. which 5,000 boards is a bit of space. Yes. They're in our map cabinets in the stacks now. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and no. now I draw everything on a computer and it's all, you know, ones yes. and zeros and it's very antiseptic. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, yes. Now, David, I know, yes. I know you've talked about this cartoon. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Many times. I often say when I'm taking tours of the exhibition that in the 20th century, it's for God's sake, stop laughing, this is serious, is the viral cartoon of Australian cartooning in the 20th century. But the 21st century, um, I think this, is, this cartoon um, is perhaps one of the most famous Australian cartoons. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it was drawn... I mean, everyone knows... This. Everyone knows the story, the Charlie Hebdo massacre, the massacre of the officers there, and um, we were all watching it sort of unfold quite live, really, on social media uh, late at night. And, um, and I drew this image very quickly to really to circulate, to make it just a, to circulate amongst the other people I saw watching on Twitter, the other cartoonists. We were all trying to get information. By 2 o'clock in the morning, we seemed to have it. We seemed that we'd have as much useful information as we could know about who was who'd been murdered and um, what the state of play was. And it was just a, a tweet of solidarity and, uh, and an image to go with that tweet um, that I quickly drew. And then the next morning, it, um, I, couldn't actually, I couldn't actually open my Twitter to feed, to, to um, see what, to read people's responses. And it took a few days before that was um, possible. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I... Uh, it strikes me um, when I look over your history of cartooning that your activist background and your strong engagement with political ideas that sometimes you're optimistic about the potential for change in society and sometimes you're pessimistic. So I have two cartoons. Oh, okay. I, have, I have this one after the referendum and um, this one um, about Parliament. the Australian Parliament. Yes. So. I just sort of, um, how do you feel about cartooning expressing um, your political ideas and, and what it reflects about Australian society? Just a short question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, sometimes I'm very pessimistic. Sometimes I, I uh, increasingly as I get older, um, the struggle is to try and find the ways, to find nuance, to find the, the greys and not the black and whites. Uh, um, I think cartoons, look, the real strength of cartoons, the reason people like cartoons, I think, is that they actually um, preach to our prejudices. Uh, that's when we like a cartoon, because it reinforces what we already think. Uh, and I'm not sure how good cartoons are at actually changing anybody's mind about anything. I still think that, I still think trying to connect with other people who feel like you and, and help sum up how we feel is not a bad thing, is it's not, it's not a useless thing. Um, and, and cartoons are best when they are informed by some passion and, and a belief. If they're just little anodyne gags, then um, they're, they're a pleasant entertainment. But political cartooning should be trying to express a point. And part of the challenge then is to express a political point that isn't, just doesn't become partisan. I'm, I'm hoping people will, uh, can dismiss my cartoons because they don't agree with the political line in them or the political uh, conclusion I've come to about an issue. Um, uh, but I hope I hope they're not just seen as being cheer, cheerleading for uh, one side or the other. That um, uh, that it, I'm really I, I want to be engaged with the issues, uh, and and we have some huge issues. I mean, I'm just struck today, this week, like trying to pick out things to draw, and there's like a, there is this 
conga line of possibilities of just terrible things that, you know, you feel like, we should be doing something about X, Y, Z. Uh, you know, whether it's this looming conflict in the Middle East with uh, Bolton muscling up to Iran, or whether it's the decision on Adani and this carbon bomb that they want to release through the Galilee Basin, or um, the fact that there are still uh, people on Manus and Nauru who have been caught in limbo. Um, and whatever, you, you know, whatever your position might be on, um, on turnbacks, and I think the government sort of won on a large has won the debate in a, in a large, large field uh, there on refugee policy. But we have these people stuck in limbo uh, on, on this island, no fault of their own. Um, and uh, it's just appalling to see that, we, that they'll just be left there for longer. Still lots to draw about. Lots to draw about, yeah. No shortage of um, topics. How did you, Jeff? how did you feel about your position in politics and what you were saying when you were drawing? I, uh, from time to time, I worried about balance, uh, that I was seeming to be too one-eyed. But when I went back to the library to do the work on the, the catalogues of the cartoons, I realised that, you know, I was quite even-handed, but it took time. Uh, and my philosophy is always that, uh, that the government of the day are the actors, and everybody else... Um, the opposition, the readers, the, uh, the cartoonists, journalists are reactors. They react to what the government is initiating through its constitutional powers. It's a very narrow sort of way of looking at it. But the government of the day is fair game in anything they do. And of course, whenever the opposition somehow comes to the fore, you know, makes a colossal, colossal stuff up on anything, then. Uh, the reactors just fall upon them in glee because it gives gives everybody a change of diet from the government day after day, and uh, uh, and I remember once uh, during an election campaign talking to my editor Ian Matthews about this, and he said, "No, don't worry about it. You know, you just say what you want to say. Don't don't worry about how it appears to the reader. It's your business," and that that was good advice. I thought we might. You indulge me by... We might just run through some of the cartoons we're actually in the exhibition and, mm -hmm. and you guys can think back on some of the people who, who, who's, who you have followed after. So, of course, this goes back to uh, Hop, um, back to 1866 from the Bulletin, and we're lucky to have the original of this artwork in our collection. Um, so I just thought you might get some quick responses from you guys from some of the, some of the cartoons on show. One comment is that they're nearly always beautifully drawn. You know, there's nothing wrong with the draftsmanship and the, you know, the inking and so and the rendition. Sometimes, I mean, context—it's almost impossible to know without some historical background. I think you do a good job of curating this and writing, you know, providing some context, writing the context for people because yes. cartoon, political cartoons are ephemeral things. They hang on the news of the day, and without that, it can... Yes. But I, I mean, the thing I, I'm struck by a lot of the work is just how, like I said, I'm drawing on a tablet now, and some of these pieces, you know, it really is... They're, so, they're so this piece is about A3 yeah. in the original. And yes. some of them are it's like massive. a metre you know, yes. high, and I just love seeing the up close. Uh, mm. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like from a different age, um, how some of these works were produced, like a different, yes. whole different yes. technology. Yes. Yes. And it's just drawing. It's just drawing. Yes. <laughs> and of course, you've got the lovely little boy from Manly here, and, and you've also got the very anti Semitic moon in the uh, right hand mm -hmm. corner. Yeah. So there's a lot going on in this Hop cartoon. 
Um, and you guys both mentioned, referred to this uh, cartoon, which is Phil May and the Mongolian octopus. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, that image is so strong that uh, I once used it uh, for a cartoon for the Canberra Times with due attribution, of course, if you don't sort of pitch the idea, which is a no-no. But uh, I used it quite uh, appropriately, I thought. But it's a, it's a very strong... Um, uh, expressing prejudices that um, and this all, is a all right for the day, but yeah, well, you, you, you've got to you've got to look, uh, look at it and appreciate it in con its historical context. Well, I, mm. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go with it. It's all right in its day. I mean, it certainly mm. reflects its its period, and that's yes. what's it's it's good to see the exhibition not shying away from that and showing. Yeah. Um, I think perhaps one of the differences is that Phil May would have been doing what the editors of the Bulletin wanted him to do. Yes. He wasn't acting as an independent commentator. He was actually providing them with the visual ammunition yes. for the arguments the Absolutely. editors were making. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in the previous image uh, the anti-Semitic uh, depiction in the corner. I, uh, I've got a, uh, an original low at home on my wall, which was collected by my grandfather, who was a cartoonist. And it's... Um, it's, it's just plainly anti-Semitic and it just wouldn't pass muster. You just wouldn't get it past an editor uh, today. Uh, and then Lowe, the irony is that he uh, went off to the UK and cartooned there and really um, chronicled the rise of fascism in Europe. Uh, and, um, There's a Lowe there. Yeah. This is yeah. one from the World Festival. He, he was knighted uh, for his work. And the best accolade of all, he had a price put on his head by the Nazis if they ever um, invaded Britain. So, so it just shows that you know you, you can't judge somebody on something they've done in the past, as people tried to do with Bean, the historian. And I, I think there's a, that what you're picking up there too is good. Is that May was working was a hired gun, yes. whereas Lowe, particularly by the end of his career, had become a completely independent. No one could tell Lowe what to draw. That's and right. in World War One, he's very famous for taking on Billy Hughes, and I love this uh, caricature of Billy Hughes. He was savage yes. on Hughes, and yeah. uh, and I mean, as a, from a cartoonist perspective, just looking at his caricatures, and and this is you know pre, I mean, I'm the YouTube generation. If I want to, if I want a reference to see, to draw someone, I can just tap away on my computer and pull up yes. an image. Thousands. When we started, Which when I started the paper, you you had to rely on photographs or yes. go down to Old Parliament House and. Yes. Sit, sit there and I remember the one of the first budgets I went to, you dragging me down to the front so we'd draw Costello, I think it was, yes. you know, because yes. this was a chance to be up close and actually see how they moved. And, yeah. and, and Lowe's in a period where, I mean, you know, even less, even more restricted and yet he, his caricatures are, are superb. Yeah. And he's starting to uh, feel at home, I think. Uh, the, the cartoon I've got is, is from the Sydney Bulletin and it really is a jobbing cartoon, you know, mm. turning a quid, uh, buying beer and food on the table. Well, I, my joke about Lowe is that, like many famous Australians, he's actually a, a New Zealander. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> of course, he only spent a relatively short time in Australia, but we very, we yes. very gratefully took ownership of him he's before the, he went off and became... He's the Pavlova of Australian cartoons. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <That's right. laughs> like Alan, Alan Moyer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, like Alan Moyer. Yeah. Um, now, I, I couldn't do we couldn't do a talk about Australian cartooning without pausing for a moment to reflect on Stan Cross's "For God's Sake, Stop Laughing." This is serious. I mean, this this cartoon was so famous at the time; it's hard to appreciate uh, now. Um, in fact, there were a lot of people so worried about 
what happened to these two guys that he ended up drawing a sequel. <laughs> Which I don't know if you've got that in yeah, the... Yeah, we do have it in the collection and it's a happy ending. Um, <laughs> yeah, it didn't need ne to be. Neither of them die. They're, they're clambering back up, up onto the top of the building. So well, it, if you're a, wondering what happened, that's what happened. It's either grimly funny or funnily grim. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing yeah. in between. But uh, yes, I, I just love the competence of the drawing. He's, he's, he has got the, uh, the full sort of physical activity, you know, of a, of a disaster in the making. And it, it, it's not just the both dropping, it's the sledgehammer going first. That's not going to do much to anybody underneath. And, but and it, it is really, a, it's just a beautiful drawing. And I think Cross, in a way, is like a halfway point between somebody like May and Lowe and you guys, who are mm. independent commentators, in that Cross could say what he liked, but he often did exactly what the editors of Smith's Weekly wanted him to do. And in this case, he was just illustrating a gag which had been given to him. So he didn't yes. come up with the idea. He just, he just said, oh, yeah, I'll do you a picture for that. Yes. So just a few others. I, this is one of my favourite, more in the tabloid tradition of Mercier. I, I don't know if either of you guys had a strong appreciation of Mercier. I grew up on Mercier. I think it was in the Sun Herald. Does anybody remember Emil Mercier? Yeah. And he, did he have um, uh, his drawing frame sitting on little springs at yes. the bottom? And it was crazy, you know, yeah. he was very fay, um, very, uh, very much an individual. But, you know, I could never forget him. I love the father thinker having deep thoughts in his study while, while the rest of the family goes, goes crazy. It's a, it's a delightful depiction of uh, suburban Australia. And that kitchen is very recognisable. It's, uh, right. it's, a, it's a great well, drawing. Well, and somebody doing a tax rebate, it looks as though he's deep in the, in the uh, travails of writing fiction, doesn't it? Yeah. So I think he's more in that tradition of um, documenting the social life rather than necessarily making very particularly yeah. hard-edged political social commentary. Social comment, yeah. yeah. Now, I suspect both of you were strongly influenced by this artist, Bruce Petty. Yes. Yeah, well, I grew... Yeah, that, he'd be one of the artists I grew up with. Although in Canberra, it was more through uh, occasional copies of The Age and, and some of his books um, that were published, anthologies from time to time. And just... Uh, um, I mean, he, he, as a cartoonist, it's just... He's, he just sort of, it just sort of flows out of his brain on, through his hand like, uh, like water. Uh, he, he, mm. There's no stopping or sitting back with him. I remember drawing some cartoons in for a paper in Adelaide and he was also drawing some and they would arrive in an envelope. Um, just these pieces, they were sort of sticky taped together and bits were cut out and there was white out. Like they were just these most amazing little artefacts where he just whip them out, and then once they're photographed for the paper, they... No, no Bainbridge artboard. It was A4 bond and a felt-tip pen. Yeah. yeah. And for Canberrans, he was uh, whipping them out of the uh, newspaper office in Mort Street, uh, where Murdoch set the Australian up. In fact, the Canberra Times has always had a boast and it was never made too loudly that we were only the only newspaper to ever run Murdoch out of town. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're back. <laughs> they're back. Yes, they're back. <laughs> um, so Tanberg. I'll just Tanberg, very, I'll yeah. just very quickly, because yeah. I want to leave a little bit of time for questions, but Tanberg, mm. of course, the classic pocket cartoonist. Mm. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, um, uh, it worked brilliantly because um, he, he drew contextually to a story uh, and um, uh, didn't worry about 
using too much white, simple lines, and it just sort of the focused the eye right into the page. And uh, Lunig, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's unfair to ask you just to say a few words about Lunig. But, uh... <laughs> well, you sort of social conscience. I think that was the expression you used the other night on Late Night Live, uh, that uh, he's not, not political so much as a, as a social social commentator. He brought philosophy into Australian cartooning, in a way. Yeah. And, uh, and, and again, having grown up with uh, his anthologies, that, that was su such a refreshing thing. Like, it was very, something very subversive about what he did with cartooning at that time, that he wasn't just drawing these dry politicians, but he was trying to express mm. something about the psyche of, of, uh, of us and uh, the nation and the people around him. And, um, and you know, I think... Yeah, it's, it was quite important. Kathy Wilcox. <laughs> one of the few women. Yes, uh, that's one of yeah. the things I grappled with in the exhibition is there's not a huge number of women cartoonists. I don't cartoonists. know why. Yeah. Just as political in their outlook. Yeah. Well, yeah, Kathy's just... Um, she, she, she can work in both in sort of small stuff yes. in the... In the I mean, pocket cartoons. Yeah, she absolutely yes. cut her teeth with pocket cartoons. And, is, um, and translates to the larger editorial yeah. format. Yeah. And I thought this was appropriate today. Ward O'Neill. Yeah. of Bob Hawke. Um, and you can just recognise it by looking at it. It's, yeah. It's and that's sort of from the era... And it, we're sort of losing that of op-ed illustrators where people would draw cartoons and uh, to accompany an opinion piece in the paper. And... People like Ward and John Spooner had quite a lot of freedom in terms of what they, how they were mm. approaching that and who they'd work with to draw those images. So there's a, it's not just an illustration, like it also, these, these op-ed illustrations were also expressing something of the... O'Neill and Alan Ramsey were in yeah. conversation for years yes. yeah. Yeah, at the Sydney Morning Herald. Yes. So look, just to finish, I've got this quote, sadly it seems like newspapers, the traditional cartoons will disappear for readers will be the loss of an old close friend who they've laughed at and cried with, a friend they may have cut out clippings stuck to the fridge door along with other treasured trophies, arguably a greater honour than a Facebook share. <laughs> now this is Rocco Fasari who used to work at the yes. Canberra Times yes. and um, he's a bit David grim, yeah. a, bit, a bit grim about the future of cartooning, how do you guys feel about that? Pretty much the same. I, I just had an article today sent to me by a, a good friend about the New York Times uh, giving up on publishing uh, editorial cartoons. Uh, now, New York Times, I mean, heaven forbid. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it seems to be the outrage industry has, um, has got them. And uh, this is something that's worldwide, uh, according to the author of this, and I don't see any reason to agree, but I just, there's a little quote here that I think is relevant. He says, uh, cartoons are particularly conducive to offence taking. Their strength is also their weakness. Cartoonists' power of visual association, that is making metaphorical links between different ideas, and that's what we've been talking about, can be hijacked by readers who can claim to see connections never intended by the artist. Now, that's always been something that cartooning has to deal with, you know, uh, unforeseen intentions. Uh, people who, um, uh, who attack you uh, on a ground that you've never thought of. In fact, you know, if you go to the absurd degree, I once had to deal with a poor woman who uh, was obviously had a mental problem 
She accused me of putting her and her, her husband who'd separated from her, she'd had a sad life, in my cartoons. And uh, so that, uh, having to deal with that, she kept ringing me up and in the end, you know, it, it stopped. But um, that's the, uh, you know, seeing connections that don't exist, it's a risk you take, but it's always there. I think it's probably more fraught now, uh, in part because the work can be circulated internationally so much more easy, easily now and can be removed from the context in which it was drawn. And I think, so for example, with Charlie Hebdo's cartoons, a lot of which I do nothing for me and I'd have problems with a whole lot of their work, but some of their work, which is definitely meant to be satirical, crosses uh, the language barrier and the, the, the sort of satirical intent doesn't cross, just this very brutish image does, which... Uh, can then be read in different ways. It's different in the left bank of Paris to a village mm. in Pakistan. Yeah, mm. and, uh, and, and so that, that, that's an issue. And um, I, I think there's, there's different elements to this sort of outrage thing too, though, because we're in an era of social media where people do have the chance to speak back to newspapers and to people who produce work for newspapers, and that's legitimate. Um, uh, you know, the, some of these racist cartoons that we've seen there, people can now... They don't have to put up with an editor who, who commissions a racist cartoon and puts yeah. it out. They can, they can say what they think. Yeah. And that can be difficult. It can be difficult to hear. And it's how to manage that conversation that is quite, um, quite tricky. Uh, so uh, there's no easy answer about how to, man how to navigate that. Um, yeah, I, don't I don't see it, it just being an outrage industry that's killing cartoons. I mean, people killing cartoons are New York Times editors. And, uh, um, <laughs> well, it, it's... Uh it's a campaign on the newspaper more than the cartoonist, I think. You know, they're looking to silence voices. The New York Times is, is a bit interesting. My understanding is they haven't always... Domestically, they've never really had a big... a lot of cartoons in their paper. Mm. They've gotten rid of the two cartoonists who were doing a great job in their international editions and, um, and people have really pushed, are really pushing back at the moment on that. Well, I might... I'm sorry, we've used up, we've got about 10 minutes for questions. So um, I'll throw it open to the floor. Um, if you could stick your hand up. There was one down here. All the hands are going up all over the place. <laughs> so could you please use a microphone? Um, I think one up the back first. We'll get a microphone to you. Uh, are there any topics that you'd consider to be taboo in cartooning. I know that uh, Bill Leake was vilified towards the end of his uh, life and career for some of his cartoons. Um, is there anything that you would regard as taboo? Uh, question often asked and hard to answer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, taboo. Yeah. For me, the challenge is uh, how do I express what... What do I want to say about something? How do I express it? Um, and not all... And no one, I, I can't possibly say that. Uh, so I don't, I don't feel constrained in, in that way of going, oh, I can't talk about that topic. Um, well, it's a risk you can run is uh, to be accused of being um, uh, a racist or, or uh, racially offensive by um, stereotyping your images. Uh, now, I'm drawing an Asian, say, in a cartoon or used to, I'm retired now, um, he would look like an Asian. He wouldn't look like um, uh, an androgynous sort of human being. He had to be identified physically, and that could lend yourself uh, to 
being um, stereotyping in a, in a racist way. That, that's a crude example, but this was always a risk. But it, it's something that never worried me. So I, just, I, I think just there had are, to do it. There are, there are, I guess you take care in approaching certain topics. For example, if I want to draw about um, Israel and its policies in, um, in Gaza and uh, in the occupied territories, uh, I'm careful with the imagery I'll use. I don't want, it, I don't want the charge of anti-Semitism to be levelled to get in the way of the political comment about what the Israeli government's doing. And I've seen other cartoonists get in strife. I mean, the reason the New York Times... One of the reasons it's, it, it, stopped this, it stopped its cartoons recently because of an image they put in that was um, published, which they apologised for, of Trump as this blind person being led by uh, a, a seeing-eye dog, which was drawn as Netanyahu, and it was deemed anti-Semitic. Um, and I, I, I think there, were, there was a Star of David um, on the collar, and I think that was probably the attempt by the cartoons to, say, to indicate this was Israel, but it's too easy for that to be viewed as indicating um, Judaism. So it's that sort of imagery where, where people can get um, tripped up. And uh, you so, can... you know, there are, there are, I guess there are areas like that where you, you have to be... Um, you have to be focused on getting that comment across as a political comment uh, and what images you use so that you can defend it. But that can be as much as what people are going to accuse you of and we know that the Israel lobby is extremely strong. Oh, well, that that, that, that's, the, that's what's been used to, to yes. shut down yes. top, uh, comment on that topic. So I think we had one in over here and then one at the front. In the context of your final few remarks, do you have, do you harbour a lurking fear that the cartoons, may, the cartoons may become entangled in the government's vendetta against people's right to know or challenge? Do you want to uh, elaborate? Like, that there will become. Um, well, we what's your fear? In in relation to uh, the the crackdowns on on journalists at the moment, are cartoonists liable for to come under the same form of threat? in terms of, in commas, revealing uh, facts that might otherwise not be known or lifting a rock that the, that the, uh, that the politicians don't particularly want lifted? Oh, I'd be much more worried about my journalist colleagues because we ultimately are bouncing off the work that our, our colleagues do to bring stories to light. Um, cartoons only work because the reader comes to them with some knowledge that they've read in the rest of the paper, reading our journalistic colleagues' work about an issue, and then we can make some political point um, from that. So, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not worried at that level. I'm much more worried about what our journalists can, can put in the paper. And at, at that level, then, what we can talk about and people will understand what we're trying to draw about. We have time for just one more question. I love the allusion to a clown when you're drawing Scott Morrison. Now that he's Prime Minister for real, is that, going, is that going to persist? Yeah, that's a good question. I was, I've been thinking about that. Um, <laughs> I, I drew him as a clown after a number of incidents like uh, dragging foreign policy into the Wentworth by-election and, and making this snap decision to... Well, this thought bubble about moving the embassy. Uh, uh, there was a couple of incidents there which I just thought... and the that vote in the Senate about uh, it's okay to be white, this sort of alt, this neo-Nazi white supremacist meme, just insane. Like, 
So it was a couple of things like that where the, I just noticed one day, actually I've done three of these cartoons and there's this clown image. So um, it persisted. And then I thought after the election, well, does it persist? I'm not sure. We'll see, we'll see what happens. But um, I don't think the government comes into this term with enhanced authority. I know they've won the election that, that everyone, the polls were telling us they weren't going to win. But uh, I feel like the, op the opposition didn't make the case for um, winning the election. And it's no great love for the government, which, came, which had no agenda beyond the tax cuts that it announced in the, in the budget. Yeah. So, just, just so at that level, I don't feel like yeah. there's some enhanced authority um, and I don't think the divisions in the party have gone away. Um, they seem quite clear that the Queenslanders have feel galvanised by the result around energy, and you've got the Zali Steggles of the world who've come into the parliament because there's a whole part of the Liberal Party who, 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 who want a different way. So those divisions are still there. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see how the circus is maintained. And just, yeah. <laughs> just briefly, too, that uh, sometimes you create iconic images to uh, encapsulate the personality and, and the qualities of a political leader. Uh, uh, for my own part, I did it with Keating for a while as the Sun King, because that's the way he presented himself to me and to the reader. But then the challenge is, is to know when to dispense with it, you know, when, when you think it's done its dash. And that takes a bit of thought too. Well, I'm sure there are many <coughs> questions, but unfortunately we've got to draw things to a close. So um, thank you for coming. If, you, if you'd like to see, if you haven't seen the exhibition yet, it's on the ground floor in the temporary exhibition gallery. If you want to take the exhibition home with you, you can buy the book, uh, which is uh, in the store. And of course, I'm happy to say that for today, it's 20% off. So uh, if you do want to get a bargain, you can pick one up in the shop. Um, and I just mentioned you've been to uh, this event uh, when you go. They'll give you a, I'll give you a special deal. Um, and if, you, if your thirst for knowledge about cartooning has not yet been satisfied, you can come and see... Um, I'm, I'm going to do a talk about the, um, the best of the Bulletin, so uh, nine, uh, sort of 19th century Australian cartooning. I'm doing that at lunchtime on the 12th of July, and details are on the web. And with that, please, let us thank David and Jeff. Thanks,